right now. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see everybody tonight on a beautiful day in Syracuse, 51 degrees and sunny on the day after Groundhog Day. Did he see his shadow or not? Anybody know? No, he didn't. He didn't? No, we're all excited. Wow. That means winter's shorter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In November. <laughs> well, we had early. It came early and often, and then not so much later, hopefully. All right, so it's going to start time in prayer and see what God has for us. Father, thanks for uh, a great night uh, to meet and to gather in the name of Jesus. We thank you that you're here to teach us. We ask that we would... Be open to receive what you want to say and what you want to do in our lives. Uh, we submit ourselves to you and say, have your way. Uh, we give ourselves to you and invite you to bring change, to bring growth, to bring challenge. We invite you, God, to really just infuse us with some life more abundantly tonight. We receive of you. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. And as you're opening up, just a quick reminder that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com slash Monday Night Bible Study. That's all one word, all one thing. And you go there. And uh, you find a button you can toggle, and that button is like leaving a voicemail. So leave us something. could be your name. could be where you're from. could be a question, comment. It could be something good that you guys have done in your life. Uh, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. It could be in your native language. We'll figure out a way to translate it, but we'll endeavor to play it at our next Bible study. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we know from our statistics we have people listening uh, in all kinds of parts of the world, and so really thankful for all of you listening, and we'd love to hear from you if you get an opportunity to do that. First Samuel chapter 9, if you need a Bible, you can grab one off the table. Uh, they're around here, available and ready for use. First, cha- First Samuel chapter 9, verse 18, I need a volunteer. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, anybody, right off the bat, before I say anything, anybody find anything weird about this uh, passage? Yeah. Yeah. He's the guy. That's correct. That's correct. Samuel is the guy. He's the seer. And so you have Saul. Saul. Now, this is Saul who would be the future king of Israel. 
Saul, who stood head and shoulders above everybody else. Saul, who would be chosen at the demand of the people to be king. Walking up to Samuel, who is the seer, and asking him what? Hey, can you tell me where the seer is? Now, I can remember reading this, thinking to myself, that's weird. That's weird. And so I want you to let that just churn a little bit in your brain for a second. And so this took place, some of your Bibles say it took place at the gate, but oftentimes the gate indicates just the city. And uh, some and most of the more reliable translations would have it right in the middle of the city. So in other words, uh, Saul had shown up to see Samuel. And so as he was coming in, if you look at it, and you can read a, you can read ahead of this verse, and you can read after this verse to get an idea of some of the context, but he had run across what was referred to in some Bibles as some maidens. And he asked the maidens, he said, can you tell me where the seer is? And so they pretty much told him where to find the guy. And so they directed him to Samuel, and so he, he wasn't going in blind or anything, so he goes into the city, he goes to where they said, and there's Samuel. And then he still asked the question. He still asked him. So, Samuel was the first, and, and I want you to understand this about Samuel, because it tells us something about his spirituality. And here's what I want you to hear about Samuel. Samuel was the first and the most forward to honor Saul. Now, if it had been me and I had been Samuel when Saul walked up to me like that, I might have made fun of him. I might have. It's a possibility. There's a strong possibility I might have said something smart-alecky to him because he's asking the guy who's the guy he's looking for, which I think is funny. But... Samuel instead honors him because he's the future king. Now, now, why was Saul out and about looking for the seer? Anybody know? Did you read ahead a little bit? Uh, they seemingly lost uh, some donkeys. <laughs> yes, he was looking for donkeys. Yeah. And so he may be the only guy in history that went out to find donkeys but found a kingdom. He may be. Because his sole purpose was heading out, his sole purpose was looking for Samuel, was to find his donkeys. That's what his main concern was. And so he went to the seer to see if the prophet could tell him where his donkeys were. And so that's what his concern was. And so in a, in a kind of a single-minded, single-focused kind of way, he goes and he finds the prophet to ask to find out where his donkeys are. Now, Samuel had been told by the Lord, if you read ahead and read behind, uh, what you see is Samuel had been told by the Lord that this guy Saul was going to come and that he would be the next king of Israel. So Samuel understood who he was going to be. Samuel understood what the future held for him. Samuel understood that there was more in store for this young man than finding his donkeys. But he was single-minded toward that end. That was his thing. That was his purpose. That was his plan. I'm going to find these donkeys. And so while he's trying to find his donkeys, <coughs> you have Samuel understanding that he's going to anoint him 
to be the first king of Israel. And so, could you say that there's two contrasting purposes going on here? Would that be kind of fair? Because it's hard to compare finding your donkeys to inheriting the kingdom. All right? And so Saul, would you say his his purpose was small-minded or big-minded? Small-minded. But he was he's small-minded and he, he, he was concentrating on the one thing, missing something that Samuel understood and Samuel knew. Because Samuel understood that there was more to what was happening than just locating some donkeys. And so, I want to talk to you just a little bit about spiritual dullness. Because it's a real thing. Spiritual dullness is a real thing with people. And I'm not judging anything. I'm not not even trying to say I know when it happens or who it happens to or anything else. This is between you and God. This is between who you are and who God is and what God is doing in your life. But I want to encourage you that there's a whole world out there. There's a whole spiritual world out there. There's angels and there's demons. There's spiritual beings. And they are existing all around you right now. God is moving all around you right now. God's speaking into your life every day. God's revealing things and bringing revelation into your life. God is speaking to you through dreams. He has, he has available to you to speak to you in visions. He has available to speak to you through all kinds of means. One thing we understand about God from the Old Testament through the New Testament is that He desires to communicate with His people. And throughout all of the, the history that we have of Him, He consistently communicates with His people. And, and people will say, well, you know, there are those times where it seemed like the heavens were shut up, but were they really? Just because God wasn't speaking to Ahab and Jezebel doesn't mean He wasn't speaking to Elijah, does it? Because He was speaking to Elijah. Just because He wasn't speaking to whoever you want to pick out doesn't mean He wasn't speaking to somebody. I mean, there's no time in our history... No time that we even understand our history where God wasn't speaking, where God wasn't revealing, where God wasn't showing people stuff. Through the dark ages, God was speaking to people. Through the, 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 the darkest of times in history, God was still revealing Himself. God was still speaking. I had the opportunity when I was in college to take some history classes in the Reformation and the, the pre-Reformation and in, in some of the, the eras of the church that came before and after. And one of the things that was consistent as you read through the history of the church, that even though there were dark times, even though there were superstitious times, even though there were times where there wasn't a lot of faith, people didn't understand what was going on, people didn't speak Latin, people didn't have any idea what was happening, but there were people among them that were moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, people among them that were prophesying, people among them that were being used in the gifts of healings. Miracles were being done during those times. And although you may not look at that and say, well, that's not how I see that, well, it may not be. But there's recorded history of all those things taking place. 
because God was still moving. God was still working. God was still doing what God does in and through individuals because that's His heart. And that's what His heart's always been. So, there's a dullness that we need to recognize over our lives when it's there. That if God is speaking, which I believe He is, and if God's revealing, which I believe He is, and we're not experiencing it, we may want to make that a matter of prayer in our lives. It's kind of interesting with people. I mean, people seek certain things. They do. It's, it's natural for human beings to seek certain things. Things like riches, or power, or fame, or prestige, or pleasure. I mean, those things are, are things that people will seek out in their lives. You think about great adventurers that went out and they went out seeking whatever they were seeking. You know, why, why did somebody go to the North Pole? Why did somebody go to the South Pole? Why did somebody sail across the ocean? When everybody told them they were going to fall off the edge because the, the earth is flat. Why, why did somebody explore east to west? Why did, well, you know, you start thinking about the, the great exploration that took place on the continents of our world and all the things that happened. Well, they were seeking certain things. And whether it was riches or whether it was power or fame, whatever it was, they were seeking certain things and it drove them to do the things that they did, the exploits that they did, it drove them to do it. And, and in and of itself, I mean, that's just the nature of being human. Is, is that human beings, at least some of us, aren't satisfied, are not satisfied with just the same old. Some of us just aren't satisfied with stagnation. Because one thing about life is that once life stagnates, what happens? You tell me. Death. Yeah. Yeah, organisms that stagnate, I don't care if you're talking little itty-bitty ones on a cellular level, or you're talking big complex ones like we are, you stagnate long enough, you're going to die. That's the way it goes. And so there is a drive for life in us that drives us forward. And in the midst of that drive, sometimes people that are out seeking riches or seeking power, they find Jesus instead. It just happens. Paul the Apostle was out and he was building his resume as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was working his way up the ladder within the religious ranks of his day. And on his way to Damascus, he was going to, to arrest some more Christians to add to his resume, he got knocked off his horse and Jesus met him. Revelation, big revelation, changed his life. He was not blind. All, the, all those things took place in his life, changed the course of his life. Changed it. He didn't go seeking that though, did he? No. He was looking for whatever he was looking for. And there's others in, in the scriptures that were looking for other things, but then they found something else. It's not that that, that isn't uncommon, because it is common. The issue for us is this. We're not in the same boat as Saul was when he was on the road to Damascus, necessarily. We may have been, but we're not right now, because we have an understanding of Jesus. 
What we're looking at at this point in our lives is that the drive, whatever that drive is, we cannot be satisfied with stagnation. Can't, because it's death. And so there needs to be something that's driving our lives. Something that's moving us forward. Something that propels us. Something that keeps us in motion. Something. Something needs to do that. And, and if we're just going to live our lives, eyes closed, ears closed, not knowing anything that's going on around us, we're not really ever going to grow spiritually. It's just such a defeated place to be. That place of dullness. So I find it interesting, Saul, the Old Testament, Saul here, he wasn't really out for riches. He wasn't out for prestige. He wasn't really out for uh, power or fame or pleasure. He was out for donkeys. All right? That's what he was hunting, were donkeys, because they ran off. But he was out for something, and it was moving him forward. As silly as that sounds, the future king of Israel wasn't really out for the power. And he wasn't really out for the prestige. And he wasn't really out for the riches. He was out for the donkeys. And it was in the midst of his search for the donkeys that he ran into Samuel. But he wasn't even perceptive enough to see that he was the guy he was looking for. And so, as dull as dull can be, he asked the prophet where the prophet lives. And that's about as dull as you can get. Right? I mean, think about it for a second. Isn't that about as dull as you can get? If you ask the person where the person is you're looking for, but it's really the person, dull. Especially someone over now. Well... I didn't, I didn't even get to this part yet. I didn't even get to this part yet. I, all I told you was that he, that he was directed specifically to there by the, the maidens or whoever they were, the young ladies that he met outside the city. They directed him right to Samuel. And so he showed up right at Samuel, right where he was as he was leaving the house, but still asked him where Samuel was. I just got that far. Now there's more. He's even duller than that. Because really what he was saying to Samuel is this, and I want you to tell me if this sounds any familiar to you in a spiritual way in your life. Here's what it is. Show me what I already see. Show me what I already see. Now, what do I mean by that? So he's standing there looking at Samuel, the prophet. Sir, could you show me the prophet? What's he looking at? The prophet. So, and he, but he's asking him to show him what he is already looking at. All right? He's never going to see his donkey then. No. No, he can't find his donkeys that way, can he? Because what's he really looking for? He's not really looking for the prophet. What's he really looking for? Donkeys. He's really looking for donkeys. Now, 
Do you see? And, and I want, and I keep repeating it, how small-minded that is. How hyper-focused that is. How little that is when it comes to vision. What are you really looking for, donkeys? What are you here for, donkeys? What can I do to help you, donkeys? Can I answer any other questions for you? No, donkeys. That, 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 was, that was it. And he, he, he couldn't even see who he was talking to because of donkeys. Donkeys. And I want to ask you something, and I really want you to think about this. What do you hyper-focus on? What, what fills your small world if you have one? Something does. Might not be donkeys, but it might be something else. And I talk to people all the time, their little world is full of something. And you can see it, you can hear it in whatever they talk about. It could be a job. They talk about their job all the time. Well, what's in, in the middle of your, your world? Job. Well, what, what do you want God to do for you? Job. Well, well what can I do miracle-wise for your life? Job. Yeah. That's little, see? That's small. That's hyper-focused. It's too focused. Or it could be something else. And and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. It could be family. What, what's going on in your life, family? What, well, what, what, can, what can I do for you, family? All right. Well, what, what, can, you know, what, what kind of miracle could I do, family? Yeah. And we've talked about this before, and, and I want to be really clear about this, and that is that, okay, number one, I'm going to say this to get this, is that I love my family, I love my kids, I love my wife. All right? That's all true. But I know that Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Specifically talking about families. And as I have worked with college students over the years, specifically university students, there comes a point, usually during those four years, where that student, that young person, begins to individuate from their families. And that is a normal thing to happen in that age group. At least it used to be. You know, before people started living with their mom till they were 30 or 40. But it used to be, when I'd be on a college campus, there would be these moments of crisis that would take place during that four years and I'd be working with students where at some point or at some points there would be these crises where they were individuating from their families. They were becoming their own person. And mom and dad were upset about them becoming their own person because they still saw them as their little child. But this little child was being expected to do things and to perform as an adult. And so it creates this issue as they're living on their own, as they're responsible to get their own food or whatever they're responsible for, to wash their own clothes or whatever's going on. But something happens where there's a break in the way that they see things, the way they see themselves and the way they see their parents. Now, they don't love their parents. They just see them differently because they see themselves differently. Is this making sense to everybody? It's individuation. It just happens. It's, it's a normal part of life. It's how we all move on. And we begin to start our own lives. And we 
go about our own lives. That's how it happens. At least that's one way, one normal way that it happens. It's not the only way it happens, but it's a normal way that something like that would happen. It's all right. It's okay for that to take place. In fact, we expect that to take place. It's good. So we have to, at some point, begin to get a broader understanding of the world around us. I don't know how. Like we open our minds to see things. We open our hearts. We open the, the, the part of us to see something bigger in the world. And, and, and if all we can talk about is our little world, we've missed the point. You know, Jesus, uh, he had to make a proclamation when his mom and his brothers and his sisters came to take him away because they thought he was crazy. He was teaching a multitude of people in a, in a synagogue, like a big room full of people. And they came, couldn't get in for all the people, but they sent word in, hey, your, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are out there. And Jesus knew why they were there. They thought he was nuts and they were going to haul him off. Well, he wasn't nuts. They just didn't understand what he was doing. They, they couldn't understand it because what was their view of Jesus? Brother or son? And what was he trained in that we know of? Carpentry. And so he had lived most of his life like that. All of a sudden he turned into an itinerant preacher and miracle worker. That's what happened? Yeah. Yeah, that's what happened. And so he went about doing that and they heard about it and they're like, well, that's nuts. He's my little boy Jesus. Or he's my, or he's my brother Jesus. I mean, you know. And whatever stories or... You know, whatever they come up with, memories and stuff, but their their view was that big, whatever that big is. But there's more. And Jesus said, well, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Are these all these people sitting here that do the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, he expands the definition of what family is. Well, if we're going to live our lives in that little place, well, what can I bless you with, family? What, what can I do for family? You know, it, it's it's a narrow view. And I'm not, again, love my family, love my kids, love my wife. That's not what I'm talking about. But that is not the entirety of my universe. It never was. It never will be. There's more for all of us. There's bigger for all of us. And let's say you can get yourself to a point and... and you can begin to expand just to even see more of the world. You know, we give opportunities for people to travel. Travel, see the world, see what it's like. See what it's like. You know, the more I travel and, and the more politically incorrect I get, did you know that? You know why? Because there's a reality of the world we live in. And how do I know that? Because I've seen it firsthand. Because I've, I've been there, I've done that. In reality, not somebody's idea of it, not somebody's thoughts about it, but in reality, I've actually been there. I've actually been in some of these nations. I've actually talked to some of these people. I've actually spent time and shared life with people in all kinds of places in the world. And I have a certain understanding of how the world is. But it makes me 
Because honestly, I have that understanding. It makes me more and more politically incorrect in our nation because people live in a fantasy. They want to believe certain things that just aren't true. And so they will make them up and they will create this little bubble and that's where they're going to live. God help them if they ever really travel to any of the places I go. God help them. Yeah. Not good. But the fact is, if we can begin to open our hearts and open our minds to the world around us, to cultures and languages and ways of doing things, it's just so big. And we see the world in such a a greater way. Well, that's powerful. That there's different ways of doing things. There's different ways of, of doing medicine. There's different ways of doing food. There's different ways of spending time together. There's different modes of transportation. There's different ways that families interact with each other. There's different expectations, societal expectations in different places. There's different manners, different customs. There's all kinds of differences. And the more we see that, the bigger we become, that we understand more. It's good. You know, you travel in certain parts of the world, you're going to understand the Bible better. Because, you know, this book wasn't, the, the Bible wasn't written in, in central New York. The Bible wasn't written in the United States. The Bible wasn't written in Western Europe. None of those places. And, and so because of that, it, it, there's certain things, there's certain nuances, there's certain meanings, there's certain ways of understanding the Scriptures that you need to be somewhere else for a while. And you need to experience some different cultures. You need to experience some different ways of doing things, some different types of relationships in your life to really begin to understand what they're talking about. What does idolatry look like? What do we know? What do we know? We make stuff up about it. So we can try to make some sense of what the Bible says. That's not what it's talking about. Idolatry in the Bible, they're not talking about your TV or or your computer or your phone, okay? Which is what we try to make up and try to throw into the context of that. But that's not what it's talking about. But there are cultures that still still practice real honest-to-God idolatry where they sacrifice animals and they pour blood out and they have sacrifices and they worship little pocket gods that they believe in. There's still honest-to-God places that do that. You really want to understand idolatry, get around some of those people and watch what they do. See the fear in people. See it. See what happens when demons begin to take over people. When the spirit of fear comes on people and and, in their lives and they live their lives in fear. Yeah, experience that. Talk to some of them. Find out what that is. Find out what it looks like when when things that are, are supernatural but demonic are happening around people and see how they react to that. See how you react to that. See what you do when somebody levitates in front of you. You might be surprised what you do. And when a bunch of voices come out of one person in a bunch of different languages all at the same time, you might be surprised what happens. I don't know. But this is all a way of understanding who we are. And so even if you could take it and you could expand 
yourself and understand more of the physical world, there's a whole spiritual world that exists in addition to that. A whole spiritual realm that is as real as everything around us right now. As real as these chairs, this carpet, these tables, it's just as real. And in a lot of ways, it affects the things that you see with your eyes. But to shut yourself off to that, to be spiritually dull to that, is to have your whole world consist of Syracuse, New York. And there's a whole world out there. To just believe, oh, well, God's out there somewhere, and I'll say my prayer at night, and I'll pray over my food. That's like living in Eastwood, all right? And nothing wrong with Eastwood. It's just not the whole world, is it? Is Eastwood the whole world? It's not. It's not even close to being the whole world. But that, that's what I mean, though. It's like, it's like I'm limiting myself. I'm keeping myself spiritually dull so as not to challenge anything. So as not to challenge anything. And, and there is a real fear in some people about spiritual things. They're really afraid of it. But it's so real. We, we need a hold of this. We do. We need to get a hold of what that means. And, and we say to God, and I know it sounded so weird, show me what I already see. I saw some of you look really confused at that. Well, how do we do that? How do you tell God, show me what I already see? It's when God tells you what His will is for your life. And then you say, well, what do you want me to do in my life, God? That's the same thing as saying, show me what I already see. God tells you, okay, I want you to do this. Oh, God, what do you want me to do? That's how silly that question is. That is how silly that is. Show me what I already see. Saul's a great example of this kind of dullness. He's a great example of how silly this is. He is. He's just silly. Because all he had in his mind was his little world of donkeys. That's all he focused on. Donkey, 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 donkey. And he's got the prophet standing right in front of him. Show me what I already see. Where's the prophet? Because all I'm thinking about are donkeys. Could this be the prophet? I'm not even thinking about that. I just want to know about my donkeys. I don't know who this is. Hey, where's the prophet? He's right there. Too dull to see it. Too focused, hyper-focused on the wrong thing to even recognize it. And, and what's really funny about it is that Samuel responded. And here's the grace of God. All right, Samuel is portraying the grace of God. You ready? Here's how Samuel responded to that silliness. Again, I said I would probably respond sarcastically to that. How did he respond? He responded with grace. He invited him to a feast. He said, hey, can you tell me where the prophet is? He's like, I'm the prophet. You want to come to a feast? And you can stay overnight, too. All right, you see the grace there? you understand the grace on that? Now, now, mind you, showing him grace by inviting him to a feast, his guest to be the guest of the prophet, the guest of the leader of Israel, his guest at the feast. He invites him in to be his guest. He says, come to the feast with me, and you can stay overnight with me, and we can hang out and get to know each other. Great invite. Great invite. But you know what he had to do in order for Samuel to agree, or for Saul to agree? What do you have to do? He had to assure him that his donkeys were okay. Yeah. Okay, so 
I'm the, I'm the leader of Israel. I'm the spiritual, I am the physical leader of Israel. I'm inviting you to a feast, and I'm inviting you to stay overnight with me. I want to get to know you. Yeah, 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 your donkeys are okay. All right, yeah, yeah. Okay, can you stay? Oh, good, all right. That's the grace of God. That he met him in his little itty-bitty world of donkeys. He met him. He assured him, and then he gave him a lavish invitation into his presence, into his life. That's Jesus. That's Jesus meeting you in your little world of whatever. I don't know. Job, family, mm, I don't know. Quilting circle, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Christmas club, uh card, whatever, bowling league. I don't know. I don't care. He meets you there. He meets you there. In your little world, he comes to meet you, assures you, and then invites you into a lavish relationship with him. That's who he is. That's who he is. And so as silly as we are, I want you to look at Samuel and I want you to look at a simple and a humble response because that's the guy we serve. Simple and humble. That's Jesus all the way. All the way. And Samuel really wasn't dressed very lavishly. He wasn't tended to by servants. He was out going to a celebration with Everybody else, he's just one of the people. But Saul is, listen to this word, be offended if you want. Saul is ignorant. Ignorant. That's his biggest problem. He's ignorant. So you can be offended by the word ignorant, or or you can look at your life and say, yep, I'm ignorant in these areas of my life. I need your help, God. I don't know that Saul could have done that, because usually when people are ignorant, they don't know it. You know, prideful people have a hard time understanding when they're ignorant, but they are. But they'll argue with you about it. I mean, just argue, 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 argue. And it's so ignorant. You know, I've gotten to the point where I tell people, if I say, okay, this is what you just did, you need to stop. Well, I didn't do that. Okay, I'm going to follow you around with a phone, and I'm going to video you. And everything you're doing, I'm going to record what you're saying and what you're doing, and then we'll just roll the tape. That's how ignorant you are. And that's what I do. I start the video, and as long as my phone has space, man, I'll just keep videoing. Because I am not going to argue about it. Not. Saul was ignorant. But God doesn't care about that. Samuel doesn't care if he's ignorant. He's ignorant. All right. I'll meet you in your ignorance. And let me, uh, let me help you out here. I mean, think about, think about who Saul was. And this is what I was getting to. And this was alluded to earlier. Saul was the chief magistrate of Israel. So anybody... 
that ever had any dispute, they came to Samuel, excuse me, they came to Samuel for him to judge it. He was the judge. So you have a problem with your neighbor. You might travel, you know, 50 miles to come see Samuel. You, you tell your side, he tells his side. Samuel says, all right, well, this is what we're going to do. And he makes a decision, judgment, and it's done. He's the chief magistrate of Israel. That's who he was. Everybody knows Samuel. Because somebody, who doesn't have a dispute every now and then, right? You need, or if you don't have a dispute, do you know somebody that has a dispute? Probably. Probably. And so he's the guy that you go to. There's only one. He's the guy. So everybody knows who he is. He's the religious leader of Israel. What does that tell you about Saul? If this guy is the religious leader of Israel, if he's the spiritual leader of Israel, what does it tell you about Saul and his spirituality? Not so good, right? Not so good. He doesn't even know who's in charge of the spiritual side of their lives. Has no idea. It's the guy in charge of the spiritual life of the nation. He has no idea what he looks like. No idea who he is. And so, this was somebody that, for one reason or another, you think about the idea of their religion, their organized religion that they had. This guy was in charge of it. This guy was in charge of the spiritual side of it. He was the guidepost for the whole nation. They looked to him as an example. He's the chief magistrate. He's the prophet. Everybody knows this guy, except for Saul. He's ignorant. He's ignorant. And so, he asked him a question. And understand the question he asked. He says, well, can you? Can you? Can you tell me where I can find the prophet? Can you? Really, can you? In other words, do you have the means to tell me where I might find the prophet. He didn't ask him, will you? He said, can you? There's two different things. Alright? Can you? In other words, are you smart enough to let me know where the prophet is? Do you have this knowledge or understanding? Do you? That's what Saul was asking Samuel. Who was the ignorant one? Saul. But he's asking Samuel, can you? Like he's challenging him. Do you have the knowledge? Do you have the understanding? The ignorant one's saying that. But that's always the way it is. That's always the way it is. And so, again, grace. I mean, the maiden's already told him. You look at verse 11. How did he not know Samuel? How did he not know him? But he didn't. Ignorant. Too consumed by his donkeys. And so here's some bad assumptions. And here's the worst assumption. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make another statement that's going to sound stupid. You ready? Send me there for what I have here. Send me there for what I have here. Yeah. That kind of goes in line with the other one that I said. Show me what I already see. Right? So, so now we get to the point where, alright, so show me what I already see. Now here we are at this point. Send me there. 
Where? Doesn't matter. Send me there for what I have here. All right. Let's bring this. Let's bring this back to Jesus, or let's bring it to Jesus. Jesus. Now, what do I say about Samuel? Samuel is the chief magistrate, the religious leader, and the spiritual guidepost for Israel. That's who he is. So we have Jesus. Jesus, one of the one of the questions on every test I ever took for ministry, every credentialing test, every test I ever took, every level that I was as a Christian worker, licensed or ordained minister, had to take these long, drawn out, written tests, and then I was had to go through oral examinations after I passed the written test. That's just the, every step of the way. On every written test and every oral examination, there would be one question that I could count on every single time that asked me this question. What are the three offices of Christ? Every time. Every time. And so I had to dutifully say, what are the three offices of Christ? The three offices of Christ are? Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, Check. You got one right. Okay. That's on every test. And so, I don't know that I ever really thought about it while I was test taking. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, and Jesus is king. Now, why am I saying that? Well, let's look up some things. All right, let's so get your Bibles ready and let's roll. Uh, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Verses 22 and 23. Ooh. And Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. All right, now this is a prophecy that was made and then was repeated here, Acts chapter 3. And it's talking about Jesus. So Jesus was compared to, and Jesus was given to us as a prophet, God raising up a prophet like Moses. Yeah. And so, for the people that were being spoken to in Acts chapter 3, was there any higher prophet than Moses in their mind? Probably not. He was the man. He was the one they all looked to. He he was the leader. He was the one that led them out of slavery into the promised land. He was the one that saw them through. He was the one that heard from God. He was the one that did all the miracles, signs, and wonders. He was the one whose face was glowing. He was the one that met with God face to face. He was the lawgiver. He was the ultimate, penultimate of the prophets. And so he said, well, there's going to be another prophet raised up like Moses. Who? Jesus. And so there's no higher acclaim, there's no higher positioning for Jesus to be compared to as a prophet than Moses. Moses met with God face to face. So as regarded by the people, that would be no higher comparison. To understand that's who Jesus is, is, is a prophet. Okay, somebody look at Ephesians 5.2. Ephesians 5.2. Okay. Ephesians 5, 2. All right. Read it again. 
Right. So understanding who gave the sacrifices? The priest. All right. So Jesus, and we'll read another verse here in a second, Hebrews 6.20 if you want to look there. But Jesus is not only the priest that officiates over the sacrifice, but he is the ultimate sacrifice. And so when we think about him as the priest, we have to understand that his function as the priest was more than just the one who officiated the service. He was the service. He was the lamb. He was the ram. He was the sacrifice. That's who he is. And so because it's him, it's all-inclusive forever. There would never be another need for any other animal sacrifice. None. Zero. He's the end. Okay, so uh, Hebrews 6.20. Where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. That's it? He has become a high priest forever in the order of uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Yeah. And so, and so the argument back then, Dave, was that uh, Jesus didn't come from the family line that he needed to in order to be a priest. So he was from the tribe of Judah. And the priests all came from the tribe of Levi. Right. So he wasn't a Levite but he was from the house of praise. And so in Hebrews, they established that Jesus was a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And the argument about Melchizedek is this, that Abraham, who was the first of the nation of Israel that would come after him, Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek was greater than anything that would be produced by Abraham, which through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and through the sons of Jacob, the sons of Levi would then come from them, that all priests that came out of Levi were subject and underneath the order of a priest in the order of Melchizedek, because Abraham bowed a knee to Melchizedek and paid him the tithe. Follow me? All right, so in Hebrews, it was established that Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek. In other words, a spiritual order. In other words, an order without beginning and end. Because if you, if you look at how Melchizedek is described in the Bible, he was neither with beginning nor end. And he was a king and a priest, because he was king over Salem or Jerusalem at the time. And so he was also a priest because he was able to bless Abraham and receive the tithe. And so when they described Jesus as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, they described him as an order of priests and kings. And that's who he is. Follow me? Did I get too technical or is that clear enough? All right. So, so that was why they took all that time in Hebrews to describe Jesus in that order. And to understand that about him. Okay, somebody look at Matthew twenty-seven, eleven. Matthew twenty-seven, eleven. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, "Are you king of the Jews?" And Jesus said. 
Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah. He's the king. He's the king. All right. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, it talks about our mediator. And what's a mediator? You can read 1 Timothy 2, 5, by the way. But what's a mediator as you turn in there? Mm, not exactly. Yeah, it's to, it's to meet two people in the middle. Yeah. And and to help uh, reconcile. That That's what a mediator does. So, uh, 1 Timothy 2.5, anybody? For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. All right. One mediator. There are no others. Those of you that grew up Roman Catholic... There are no others. Zero. Zero. There's just one. And Or whatever traditional religion you may have grown up, there's just one mediator. And to all of our friends who want to let us know that all roads lead to the same place, they don't. Jesus is the mediator. There is none other. And so I want to say that because... That brings me to that this last point I'm trying to make, and that is what I say, send me there for what I have here. Jesus has and is everything we need. There's nothing left to ponder. There's nowhere else to go. And when we can start to make that kind of a decision in our lives, when we can start to reconcile that in our heart of hearts, in our minds, it's a step in the right direction of living in faith. If you have somewhere else to go, you'll eventually go there. If you think that there's another alternative, you'll eventually take it. Because things will get tough enough, things will get hard enough, Things will get confused enough. Things will get out of hand enough that you're going to take the alternative. And that's just the way it is. Life has a way of shaking things like that out, and it does. It does. But those kind of decisions need to be made. Those kind of, uh, of determinations need to be made in our lives so that when the tough times come and and when the hard times come and the winds blow and the, 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 the rain rages or whatever it is, the storms of life come, that this is settled. There's nothing left to ponder. I've got nowhere else to go. I know, and I'm telling you, you can believe me or you don't, but my life show points this out, I don't have anywhere else to go. I haven't had anywhere else to go for a long time. Since I was probably 19 years old, I've had nowhere else to go. And you know what that did for me? I'm still here. I'm still here. Whatever was my my dream, it was gone. Whatever was my plans, they were gone. Whatever was in my little world at that time... It was gone. My donkeys were gone. I wasn't worried about my donkeys anymore. 
whatever they were. I don't even remember what they were. All right, but I'm sure I had some donkeys. They're gone. Forget them. And so after that decision is made, we just live. It's time to live. We got what we need. Prophet, priest, king. There's no more. We have no other needs. We have somebody who loves us. We have somebody who cares for us. We have somebody who is looking out for us, who wants the best for us. We have somebody that is providing for us. We have somebody that is showing us more love than we can ever receive even. That's how much love is out there for us. We can't even receive it all. We can't comprehend it or see it all. It's just all there. And there's a whole world that's in front of us that that can be revealed. There's a whole spiritual world in addition to a huge world that, that we can experience. That the doors are open. Even in our ignorance, God still has the doors open that we might understand, that we might learn, that we might come into a place. The opportunity is always there. There's nothing left to ponder. except for donkeys and other small things that don't matter. So Saul, I guess at some point, figured it out. Not exactly though, right? Nope. I mean, he eventually figured out who Samuel was because Samuel anointed him king over Israel. But he didn't listen to him. He was still worried about the wrong things. He spent his life worried about the wrong things. He died worrying about the wrong things. He had much to ponder, I guess. I suppose he found his donkeys. I don't know. But you know what the bigger thing about that is? Who cares? He shouldn't have. As king of Israel, he could get as many donkeys as he wanted, couldn't he? He could have ordered them up. Give me some donkeys. They went and got him some donkeys. No worries. As God's children, we serve a God who can do anything. Anything. Why don't we leave our plots and our plans and our small worlds and our little things behind and find our rest, find our peace in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the prophet, priest, and king who loves us. And it's just waiting, waiting for us to come into relationship and live in relationship with Him. take a few moments uh, I just want to encourage you to uh, just think about some of the things that we're talking about tonight just think about them best you can and maybe you need to really just believe God to open up your world a little bit a lot just expand bigger things going on. Open your eyes. See what's right in front of you. Stop asking for stuff that's right there. 
stop running after stuff over there that you already have here. I don't know if you can understand how big a waste of time that is, but it is. And if by some miracle, and I know I sound sarcastic when I'm saying this, but I mean this, by some miracle, you're able to see your own ignorance tonight. Beg God, beg God to fill you in. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you, you love us. That even as Saul came before Samuel, Samuel just loved him. As silly as his questions were, as silly as he were, as small-minded as he was, as worried as he was about things that didn't matter, as consumed by things that really had no bearing on anything that really meant anything, he showed him so much grace and love. He, he showed him, invited him into this lavish relationship with him. And he was a man. I mean, Samuel was a man. And he showed that kind of humility. God, how much more, Jesus, do you show us? The grace that you show us, the love that you show us, the patience that you show us calling us into a lavish relationship with you. I pray we can set aside our smallness, just the little things that consume us, that they just be absorbed into something that actually matters. So Jesus, thank you for loving us and thank you for pouring out that love all over us and into our lives. Thank you for the, the kind and, and so giving invitation, bountiful invitation that you give to come into that lavish relationship with you. Thanks. And I pray that we stop chasing after things that we think are out there somewhere when everything we really need is right here with you. So begin to open our eyes to the world we live in. Begin to open our eyes to the physical world, the spiritual world. Begin to open our understanding to more of the spiritual realm and more of what you're doing. More of the supernatural. More of, of what's going on around us all the time. That God, you would open our spiritual eyes that we wouldn't be so dull. But I, I just pray and I speak, we come to life. That we come to life. That we come to life. Hmm. Thanks, God. We give you thanks. Ask these things in Jesus' name. To agree by saying, Amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm -hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, see a lot of people. Yeah.
No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.